Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that the coffee plant's natural defense mechanism is caffeine. Bugs don't like to chew its leaves, but bees like the caffeine boost. So the bees keep coming back for more just like we do. And uh, who would have thought that caffeine was actually also uh, one of the primary defenses against fungus that coffee has? So the more there's a fungal attack on the coffee plant, the more caffeine it makes, which I find fascinating. This is one of the reasons that Robusta coffee, the stuff that you you generally don't drink, has more caffeine is because it's usually moldier. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to read you a quote from him because it's a, a really powerful quote and something... Uh, something that, that really leads into what we're going to be talking about. He says, when future historians come to write about our era, they're not going to write about the tons of chemicals we did or did not apply. When it comes to glyphosate, they're going to write about our willingness to sacrifice our children and to jeopardize our very existence by risking the sustainability of our agriculture, all based upon failed promises and flawed science. 
Now, that's a powerful quote, and it comes from a, a powerful guy as well. I am interviewing today Dr. Don Huber, who's a professor emeritus of plant pathology at Purdue University. He's a retired colonel with 41 years of military service where he studied man-made and biological threats. He serves as the APS coordinator for the Emergent Diseases and Pathogens Committee as part of the USDA and has spent over half a decade looking at plant diseases, focusing on soil-borne problems, microbial ecology, and host-parasite relationships. He's a leading voice in the anti-GMO and anti-Roundup movement and a crusader for upgrading our food in all ways. Dr. Huber, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. It's uh, an honor to be on with you. All right, I'm going to just go there. How are you able to be a leading voice of anti-GMO and uh, an anti-glyphosate and hold a position at a major university? It seems like it's hard to do that these days. Well, I'm retired. That makes a big difference. Got it. So, uh, it, a, it, a young professor would have extreme difficulty in surviving in the environment as we find it in academia today. So, the fact that they can't fire you gives you the power to speak the truth. Right. At least it's a major incentive. Now, I've I've been sharing my research on glyphosate and the GMO crops. Uh, for probably 15 years before I retired. The, it wasn't until my letter to Secretary of Ag Vilsack was leaked to the public. It was a very confidential letter that I wrote when I was chairman of the uh, USDA NPDRS committee as the APS representative in that position. And I was seeing some things that were uh, presenting some very serious potential consequences for us as far as threats to our agriculture. Others were seeing them also. They were seeing them in different areas. And I felt compelled to, to write that letter. I, I guess in some respects would apologize for the language that it was written in because it was written to a politician with the anticipation that that letter would be shipped over to the risk management people, and then I would be able to share the details and the uh, seriousness of the concerns. Uh, but once that letter was leaked to the public, it went viral, and uh, uh, that provided the opportunity then for me to be a little more open in sharing. I felt obligated to uh, write a a second open letter to the public to explain why I had written the first one to the secretary. And everything has just expanded from that point. Do we know who leaked the letter? We don't. Some of my colleagues in USDA think it was probably uh, someone on one of the commodity boards, but uh, we really don't have any good idea of who leaked it. Uh, what was the contents? Like, what, what, for people listening who haven't seen it, what, what did the letter say? That was a, le a letter uh, alerting to the secretary to concerns that we had as far as deregulation of Roundup Ready alfalfa. Uh, if what happens to alfalfa follows what happened to deregulation of Roundup Ready corn, 
then we could very easily lose our fourth most economic crop, our number one forage crop in the country to a plant disease that we consider rather innocuous because we have very excellent resistance, genetic resistance to that disease. The problem is when you apply Roundup to it, as we find with some of our other Roundup ready crops, that then that disease becomes very intense because the Roundup will nullify the genetic resistance. So in corn, for instance, in 2012, we lost one billion bushel of corn to a disease that was considered a very wimpy disease of no significant economic consequences throughout the Corn Belt, and that's Goss's will. And that was B, that was B with a billion, you just said, right? Right. Did we turn that into ethanol, or was it not even useful for that? Certainly you don't want to eat uh, it. That's lost production. Good God. <laughs> and, uh, and think of the habitat destruction that happened to make all of that. Like, there's no animals living there, there's no grasses, there's, there's nothing but plowed, basically sterilized soil yeah. with no food to show for it. Well, that, that disease has continued to spread. Uh, 30 years ago, it was limited to six or seven counties in eastern Nebraska and western Iowa. It's now anywhere in North America and anywhere in the world that we have shipped contaminated seed. That disease has taken over because we've increased the virulence and we've reduced the resistance of the crop. So there's a sister to that same bacterium that attacks alfalfa. And we're only able to grow alfalfa, economically at least, because we have resist genetic resistance to that particular disease. If glyphosate applications do the same thing to, to alfalfa in nullifying that genetic resistance, like it does in corn to gosses will, then that crop is in serious jeopardy in our agricultural economics from an, an animal production standpoint. could be very severe. And I asked the secretary then in that letter to do the research before the deregulation because no one had looked at it. No one had even considered that aspect, but that was... In the position that I was in, that was the responsibility that I had was to notify the secretary and other people. And that was the purpose of the letter, knowing that he personally wouldn't be addressing that, but certainly risk management uh, and other people would be involved and uh, respond to it with the appropriate scientific research then and studies that would uh give us that assurance that, that the moves that we took would be in the best interest of agriculture. Well, you also removed plausible deniability, right? Well, I'm not sure what plausible deniability uh, infers in that. But Well, I mean, if, if, if you're in a political position or in, in any position and you don't know about a problem and you didn't solve the problem, you have one set of responsibility. If you're in a position and you were notified of a problem and you didn't take action on it, you have another, essentially it moves the bar up for, for what your, your appropriate and legal behavior should be, right? So I, I'm, yeah. not, I'm not looking to suggest that there's anything nefarious there. I'm just saying that a letter like that 
has a, a lot of power because like now you know there's a problem, you are duty bound to examine the problem. Whereas before it's like, ah, it might be a problem, it might not, but I didn't have an expert who really pointed it out, so I didn't think it mattered. Certainly that, it was a serious concern for me. There were okay. four points in that letter, but that was a, <clears throat> a major a one. one. Asking, asking the secretary to delay deregulation before we had the research to confirm that that was in the best interest of our agricultural production. So, so you're, you're sitting in this position where you realize that we have a, a major threat to our food security and one that still may come to pass and that we don't have appropriate oversight. Um, basically, companies are going to sell what they're going to sell uh, because they're going to make money on it. And Monsanto doesn't have a very good track record of watching out for anyone but their own interests. I, I think that's pretty well established at this point. But you, there are kind of two different issues that come together here. One is, you said GMOs are the biggest scientific fraud since the Piltdown Man, which is like a major accusation. And then you have another thing, glyphosate itself is bad for soil and bad for people. And they're, they're kind of separate issues because you can use glyphosate without GMOs. And you can use GMOs without Roundup. Mm-hmm. Let's talk first about glyphosate and, and Roundup. And then let's talk about GMOs with or without Glyphosate. So I want to understand, given your very deep experience in the field, why you feel that way about GMOs apart from glyphosate. So, so what is glyphosate for people listening who don't understand it very well? Like, what are its mechanisms of action, and, and why should we pay attention to it? Why does it matter? Well, glyphosate's a very unique chemical. It was uh, invented by Jim Chang in San Francisco when for Software Chemical Company. They have the patent on it, and they patented it in 1964 as a very strong mineral chelator. A chelator is a compound that can grab onto another element, change its physical characteristics without becoming a part of that element. And so it's a chelator. We use chelators quite a bit in agriculture and in other areas to increase uh, solubility of chemicals. We use them to, to move minerals and chemicals across uh, plant membrane. But in the case of all of our herbicides, all of our weed killers are all mineral chelators that will immobilize a particular nutrient. Now, most of them fairly specific with glyphosate and also glufosinate, Liberty would be a common name for glufosinate. They're sister compounds, all under the patent that Jim Chang had as chelators for minerals. They immobilize those minerals so they're no longer available then for the physiological functions that they regulate in the plant. And so it's our minerals, you know, manganese, copper, iron, zinc, those minerals that make our enzymes work. So when if you want to shut down an enzyme system, you merely immobilize that mineral that is the cofactor or the catalyst and regulator of that particular function. I've likened this to having a, a 200 horsepower engine in your car. It can get you up to 60 miles an hour in a hurry. You can uh, do a travel long distance with it but it doesn't do anything until you turn the key on. And so what these minerals do, especially our micronutrients, is that they're the key 
And with the herbicide, with something like glyphosate or any of our herbicides, <clears throat> they pull the key out of the ignition. In other words, they make that mineral so that it can no longer fit in the slot that would activate that enzyme. So you have this powerful engine that's just a piece of steel out there or aluminum or whatnot uh, until you turn the key on. So to shut down those physiologic systems, we use chelators that immobilize those enzymes and turn the system off. Glyphosate is unique and it's a very broad spectrum chelator. It immobilizes iron, copper, zinc, manganese, cobalt, nickel, any of the positively charged ions, calcium and magnesium. Most of our herbicides are fairly na narrow spectrum chelators. When Jim Chang patented glyphosate as a chelator in 1964, it was primarily used to clean boilers. <laughs> because it was such a strong chelator, especially for calcium and magnesium and iron that you get scale buildup from. Then 10 years later, Monsanto realized, well, this thing's a very broad spectrum, powerful chelator that shuts down plant systems. And they patented it as an herbicide so that it's a very broad spectrum herbicide essentially killed everything. And that's where the genetic engineering comes in because they engineered a plant that could tolerate the glyphosate, has a bacterial gene that isn't sensitive to glyphosate, or it requires a different mineral element that isn't chelated, they're totally immobilized by glyphosate, so it keeps functioning. So you can now apply glyphosate directly to those plants that are protected because of the bacterial genes that have been put in. But the uh, whole program there with glyphosate is that it has multifunctions. It's a very unique compound again. In 2000, they patented it as a very broad spectrum antibiotic. This antibiotic is being applied indiscriminately in our society, in our environment, essentially at the tune of about 300 million pounds a, a year, where we're concerned about antibiotic resistance of <laughs> tetracycline or penicillin. And those are all targeted applications, not general applications like we're using glyphosate and we only use 29 million pounds. So uh, to get excited about antibiotic resistance, the first thing we should be addressing is glyphosate, yeah. a very broad spectrum, powerful antibiotic. The uh, other thing is that glyphosate is, uh, you might say, a false amino acid. Amino acids are the building blocks for proteins. And so... It's uh, for peptides and proteins and those uh, nit nitrogen materials that we rely on for enzymes and other functions that the uh, glyphosate as a glycine amino acid analog 
also has the ability to disrupt actually the structural composition uh, by replacing the normal amino acid with this synthetic amino acid to disrupt the physiological functions in, in animals as well as in plants. People who are longtime listeners uh, to Bulletproof Radio know that I'm, I'm a huge fan of collagen. I manufacture a grass-fed collagen peptide, and one of the big reasons I use collagen is because it's full of glycine, the amino acid, and, and that is the natural amino acid. I did not know until you just told me, though, that Roundup could act as basically synthetic glycine. So you'll Correct. build basically broken collagen connective tissue in your body if you're exposed to Roundup, or at least you could do that? Yes, it would uh, oh. disrupt that structure or composition of, of the uh, collagen. And uh, not, only, not only that, it's probably going to have an even greater effect as a chelator for those enzymes that, that give you the opportunity to build that collagen to start with. But then you would have a false collagen or a defective collagen in that system where you have glyphosate present. And you mentioned collagen and bones. That's one of the areas where glyphosate accumulates in the body. Wow. It, this is totally news to me. I, I've read quite a lot of, about the research on this, but I didn't understand that. And, and if you look at the other places where collagen is important, uh, stretch marks. <laughs> you, you want to have big stretch marks? So here's the deal. <laughs> Having organic agriculture might be a good idea if you don't want bad bones and, and bad stretch marks. Uh, that's... I, I don't have a study that says it causes stretch marks, but I can tell you if you have defective collagen, there's a good chance that your skin isn't going to be very stretchy and you'll get stretch marks. Wow. So what what happens then if we take this this antibiotic that we like to call an herbicide, even though it kills more bacteria than plants probably? In fact, we know that that it does that. What does that do to the bacteria in our gut? Extremely damaging because it's an antibiotic uh, against the good guys, not the bad guys. So you end up with what we call dysbiosis yep. in the gut, a disrupted balance. But the organisms that are very sensitive to glyphosate are the ones that manufacture a lot of our neural uh, compounds, melatonin, uh, serotonin, because they all come from tryptophan or tyrosine or phenylalanine. Those are the amino acids that we can't produce ourselves. We rely on our gut microbes to produce those, synthesize those compounds, and then make them available for us as nutrient supplements. So that when you take those organisms out, which glyphosate does, then you deprive the body of that neurological function, you deprive, that's also a basis for our immune function. You have your cysteine as part of your glutathione. You have glycine, part of your uh, glutathione molecule and your glutamine. Uh, those three really make up the, the, uh, your immune system. Your glutathione is a very powerful antioxidant. And so you've deprived the body then of some very critical elements. And as a consequence, then those organisms in the gut that uh, are insensitive to glyphosate take over. We don't have any voids in nature. 
the uh, there'll be something that'll come in and fill that void uh, very quickly. The ones that fill the void are the Clostridial species, mm-hmm. your uh, E. coli, your Listeria, your Salmonella, because they have an alternate type of metabolism that isn't uh, shut down by glyphosate. And so they're able to take over. We see a huge increase in difficile diarrhea, for instance, or in uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, which is Clostridium botulinum. You see the uh, leaky gut from Clostridium perfringens. All of these are, are just a manifestation of the power of glyphosate in eliminating all of those natural barriers and natural biological controls that we used to have built into our system that are now taken out because of this antibiotic activity of this herbicide. So, so if, if someone listening to Bulletproof Radio right now was to go out and eat a piece of toast made with grain that was desiccated with Roundup, they spray Roundup on it right before harvest, and a bowl of yogurt, what's going to happen in their gut? They're going to they're going to end up uh, with a fair amount of glyphosate because when glyphosate's applied to that grain as a desiccant or a harvest aid, at that time the only place that this water soluble systemic chemical can go is right into the grain. Yeah, that's where it accumulates. It accumulates in those growth points. Uh, be the root tips and shoot tips and the reproductive structures. But at that point, the only structure that is going to receive the glyphosate is going to be the reproductive structure. That's the grain that goes into your cereal, your corn, your, uh, your soybean oil, all of those things then accumulate glyphosate. Is that going to be enough glyphosate to disrupt all the lactobacilli from the yogurt? It takes uh, less than a tenth of a part per million to be toxic to lactobacillus and bifidobacteria and those other beneficial microorganisms in our gut. And yet EPA says it's fine to have 30 parts per million in grain, up to 400 parts per million in some food products. Now, a half a part per million will disrupt the endocrine hormone system uh, directly. Part of that by chelation, part of it may be from glycine, uh, this artificial glycine uh, impact, uh, substitution, and uh, others just because of the overwhelming effect of this very unique chemical and it's broad spectrum activity against everything that lives. Do you think that there will ever be executives from the companies who make this stuff, who have to have seen this research? Are they going to be held responsible for crimes against humanity? And that's a serious question, not, not meant to be you know, rabble-rousing. Like this, what you said there is so impactful. Like they're like hundreds of times more than we know breaks us. Well, there are lawsuits going on now for non-Hodgkin's leukemia. That's been quite well established scientifically. Parkinson's disease is another one that's been well established. Part of the problem is that the research that should have been done 35 years ago on safety has never been done. Mm. 
You look at the uh, safety tests that were submitted to the EPA, and you find even as, as recently as 2014, or 2014, in a study that was submitted, that the control rats had 118 parts per million glyphosate in their feed. They also had were loaded with GMO uh, proteins, and yet the test was to establish the safety of GMOs and the oh, wow. herbicidal chemicals. And so, of course, the end product of that was that, you know, they're substantially equivalent because wasn't it uh, large differences between the two groups of animals? Well, the two groups of animals, from a scientific standpoint, were fed the same thing. There shouldn't have been a scientific difference, but as Steve Drucker in his book, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, has documented that this is probably the greatest scientific fraud we've ever had since the Neanderthal man. Wow, that is, it's profound stuff. And it's, it's really disturbing that this is still going on. One of the things that, that I wrote about in the Bulletproof Diet is that when you use glyphosate, it increases natural toxin production. So I've spent a lot of time looking at mycotoxins because they inhibit mitochondrial function in humans, amongst many other things. They're linked to cancer and all. Can you talk about what glyphosate does to the natural production of bacterial toxins and mycotoxins in soil and in crops? Well, again, as a very powerful antibiotic, the first thing it does is eliminate your natural biological controls. A lot of organisms in the environment that would suppress our uh, toxin-forming fungi, especially your fusarium and aspergillus are two of the big ones. Mm -hmm. There are a number of others that fit in there, but certainly uh, uh, when you remove those natural controls and then provide an environment uh, physiologically for those organisms to flourish, you'll see those the toxin production uh, greatly increase. Uh, when we've looked at the fusarium toxins, for instance, we in used corn, to, yeah. in corn and, and uh, uh, wheat and barley, that we used to always look for zaylerone and deoxynovalinol and, and uh, Fusarsin, the, yeah. the T1 type toxins. Because in the North American environment, we didn't have an environment that was conducive for the T2 toxins that were used in Cambodia against the Hmong people and that, the yellow rain type mm -hmm. toxins. And we could trace those, the source of those toxins back to regions which had the environment where they could be produced. And so made it easy to distinguish between the, the two toxins. Now, with the extensive use of glyphosate, we find a dramatic increase in T2 toxin production. And not only that, we, in cereal grains and small grains, wheat and barley, for instance, that we used to only see the uh, toxin really produced in, in the grain. We didn't see it in, yeah. the, in the root system, even though we had extensive root colonization. 
If you look at uh, Andreas Tiedemann's research, uh, he reported at the National Fusarium Headlight Conference a couple of years ago. He said, you know, it's not safe to even use the straw or stubble for bedding now for pigs or uh, cattle because those toxins are produced in the roots and translocated up. Means that you can have very healthy looking grain that will have high concentrations of the mycotoxins in them. And then if you use the straw that you can end up with infertility because the zaleron is a estrogenic type compound and yeah. and you see all of the other consequences that a very simple molecule can change. So, so what we did is we sprayed an antibiotic on the soil, we removed healthy soil bacteria that allowed the hostile soil fungus to grow out of balance and to colonize parts of the plant. So now very potent fake estrogens, xenoestrogens like xeralanone, uh, are are forming in our crops, and then the crop looks healthy, but it's full of toxins. Then you eat it, and what are the effects that happen from both eating Roundup itself as well as these secondary nature-made toxins in response to this? Like, what happens in the human body when we consume all this stuff? Well, you you have both the, the toxic problem and you have the glyphosate problem. So yes. you have two very potent toxins. The toxins, of course, a lot of the fusarium toxins are neurotoxins, aerobatic toxins. You have uh, uh, muscular uh, types of interactions there. So Protein synthesis inhibitors, right. But then you look at the broad spectrum damage that the glyphosate molecule itself does, and some of those are at parts per billion. Yes. So Dr. Nancy Swanson, for instance, at, uh, in Seattle and uh, Andrew Liu have a publication out last year. They took the CDC data for 22 diseases. These are diseases that were reaching pandemic proportions. We haven't used that term for them, but a lot of our GI tract diseases yeah. that we've already mentioned. You have uh, a lot of... Uh, a lot of the other types of disease, the neurological, Alzheimer's, you have diabetes, you mm-hmm. have uh, the increase in cancers, and all of those types of diseases. But they have 22, and uh, they plotted against the USDA data then for the use of GMO crops and glyphosate. Yeah. And you see that it's the same epidemiological curve that fits all 22 of those diseases. And there are actually another 10 that you can plot against that curve. Now you can say correlation isn't causation, but I can guarantee you that when you see 22 diseases that fit the same (laughs) curve, it's not coincidence either. (laughs) Correlation is great uh, evidence, although it's not causation, right? (laughs) but, But we should have... And that was one of the responsibilities that we had with the USDA NPDRS program was when we would see that kind of an anomaly from a historical standpoint or see that increase in disease, we would assemble uh, a scientific panel then to investigate it. One of the things that we haven't done with those diseases is address 
the question, well, is it causation or is it correlation? And nobody wants to look, apparently. We look for all other excuses. You know, you look at the Zitka virus and all of those things as an excuse for microcephaly. Well, all you have to do is go up to Yakima, Washington, and you can see exactly what glyphosate does when you put uh, put it in uh, three rivers that go through Columbia Basin, through the Yakima area, and Benjamin County, and Hamilton County, and look at the epidemic they have now of anencephaly, where the baby's brain doesn't develop fully, and they're usually born, stillborn, but if they live, it's usually 24 to 48 hours that you get to hold your child. And uh, major epidemic, very clear uh uh, association with when they started dumping glyphosate herbicide into those three rivers for invasive weed control. Well, EPA says that's fine. That's okay. God. And uh, medical personnel are told you're not to talk about this because of the privacy of, of those individuals. And so the epidemic continues to uh, take a consequence, uh, a tragic consequence on those families. You know, my, my first book was about fertility. My wife was infertile when I met her and we restored her fertility. And one of the, the chapters in there is environment. Uh, you've you got to have very clean water. <laughs> and it, it matters, including what you shower in. And it shouldn't matter that much because you should be able to assume that those things are there. But in especially in North America, it's just not how it works anymore. Like, and like, and, and we, used, we used to say, you know, if, if you're too, if you're really fertile, maybe you should change water, not drink so much of that water. <laughs> now it's not the case. Now we find the glyphosate in the water again. It's uh, it disrupts the endocrine hormone system, so that's your fertility. Yep. Yeah, as well as a lot of other systems, your thyroid and everything else come in there at very low levels. That's a half a part per million, and you look at uh, the amount of Glyphosate that and uh, a few samples that have been run on in people's urine is an indication of how much they're consuming in their food, and you'll see that it's many times over 28 to as much as 400 times higher than the scientific studies show will disrupt the endocrine hormone system. Now, actually, for disruption of the endocrine hormone system, any amount is toxic. It depends on the damage that's done, depends on the developmental stage that, that an individual is in or a fetus is in. Uh, but any quantity, it should be zero uh, from uh, endocrine hormone function relationship. That's well, it's pretty disturbing. So for people listening who are thinking of having families, uh, it's particularly important, and I would say not just for the woman. If you want to have healthy swimmers, as we like to call them as a guy, if you're disrupting your own endocrine system, you're getting a lot of these xenoestrogens that come. You're you're basically ruining your own fertility. So both parties who want to have successful kids need to get Roundup out of their diet, and they also should get GMOs out of their diet. Can you talk a little bit about what GMOs might do to our own genes? Well... GMO, genetic engineering, is based on flawed science. It's fossil science that 
served us well as in our early understanding of genetics and Mendelian genetics and that for traditional breeding. It was uh, a functional relationship that fit into what we were seeing. We abandoned that uh, that concept of one gene, one function yeah. about 50 years ago. But genetic <laughs> engineering is still based on it. That's its whole premise is that we'll take this one gene or little uh, section of genetic material insert it we're not going to do anything to the rest of of the genetics but when you do that you disrupt the integrity of the whole system because our current concept and this came about as a result of uh, sequencing the human genome is that it's a spatial relationship each gene is in a spatial relationship with all of the other genetic material in that entire chromosome, not only the chromosome, but the entire nucleus. And it's in a three-dimensional relationship. It's not in a flat relationship, two-dimensional, like we typically picture it. It's in a three-dimensional relationship, and you end up with a lot of tags sticking out of that ball of yarn, if you want to look at it uh, in that respect. And those genes disrupt then the spatial relationship between genes and eat that spatial relationship is also influenced by the environment so that if that wasn't the case in in the development of an individual whether it's a plant or a microorganism or a or an animal that in the development everything would just be one big lump of callus and that's what we see in a petri dish until we change the environment and then we start getting differentiation. And you reconstruct a plant in that process in genetic engineering from a single cell. And as you reconstruct it, you'll start out with a bunch of callus and then you modify the environment. You have the same genetics there, but you modify the environment and you get some leaves coming up or you get some roots being produced and modify it a little more so that you can get some tillering and some other components. But it's the same genetics, but it's that spatial relationship between the genes as it's influenced by the uh, environment. Well, in genetic engineering, you're throwing in, forcing in material that then changes the spatial relationship for that whole series of, of entities uh, of regulatory and dictatorial type of, of uh, system. And at the same time, you're also adding additional genetic material from viruses for to promote your uh, trait characteristic to get it to, to be uh, expressed in the new individual. You're adding antibiotic marker genes so that we can see them directly uh, and know what ones have been transferred and which ones are transformed, which ones haven't. And so it's a tremendous disruption. Those genes then are very promiscuous because they're not established in, uh, as a component. They're an outsider that's come in. And it's kind of like, if you want to go to Chicago and establish a gang, you're going to have 
a lot of materials you're going to have to overcome uh, in other gang members. Well, it's, we're not looking at a gang here, but it's that same principle of, of the disruption of the genetic integrity then, because these materials don't become incorporated as a, a full component of the genetic system. When we eat that material then, the microorganisms in our gut can pick up those genes because they're promiscuous. They can be spread in pollen to other plants. They can be picked up by soil microorganisms. And then 10 years later, as those bacteria would uh, be decomposing corn stubble, for instance, or corn roots that had been genetically engineered, those soil microorganisms, some of them, the same organisms that we use for genetic engineering for transferring the material in, are also soil organisms. And they can then re-engineer plants 10 or 12 years later that would produce those same potent toxins that we may be very concerned about as we are with the starling. Uh, corn produced a very uh, uh, toxic uh, protein as far as animal con uh, consumption. And now we have fields that we can't grow corn for export because of the potential when if they had grown the Starlink corn or uh, one of those hybrids 15 years ago before we pulled it off the market, that <clears throat> they can still re-engineer then corn. And the concern is from several companies, countries is that uh, we don't want any of it unless it's certified that it hasn't been grown on any one of those fields that grew that particular variety of or hybrid. So most people living in cities who, who don't work in, in agriculture, who haven't run farms, have no idea that that's possible. So you, you plant something genetically modified that, that makes any one of a variety of toxins that we, we cause it to make. You burn the field down, <laughs> and 10 years later, uh, you might be growing a different seed from the same general family, and the soil bacteria reintroduce those genes. Well, and 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 you can see not not even from the, not just from the soil organisms, but when you eat that uh, genetically modified uh, corn or sweet corn or canola or or whatnot, then you also can pick up those genes. You may do it through your microorganisms, but in the study in Sheffield Township, Quebec, here just a few years ago, found that 93% of the women were carrying the genetically engineered proteins in their blood. And 70% wow. uh, passed it across the placental barrier to the developing child in the womb. And we have no idea what those specific things never, do. Never, we've never tested any of those toxins, any of those proteins wow. for safety. We've tested the protein as it's produced by the bacteria. We've never tested the protein that's produced in the genetic engineering scenario. Wow. This is concerning. 
I mean, I, I come, my background is computer hacking, like computer security, managing complex systems. And those systems are nowhere near as complex as the, the basically the food web. And looking at things like that is, is really scary. Um, are, are you concerned over the next hundred years about a global population boom? I'm not concerned about a boom. I'm concerned about a survival. Yep, me too. If you look at uh, the report last year, we've had a 30% drop in fertility yeah. just in the last five years. So that <clears throat> it's hard to have a family anymore. Some people say, well, it's great for teenagers, but I can tell you it's pretty tough on survival. And yeah. in 2002, the situation was, had reached the point that uh, the head of the United Stock Growers Association gave testimony to the Senate Ag Committee that there are two conditions that were threatening survival of the animal industry in this country. One of them is premature aging. Mm -hmm. When you take an animal to market and you don't get uh, paid for the effort and pride that you had in raising that animal because... A prime beef now looks like it's uh, a cold 12-year-old cow coming out cold out of a dairy. Wow. The, the second uh, thing was reproductive failure. Yeah. With uh, anywhere from 40 to 50% pregnancy loss. And then that's on top of a 30 to 40% infertility rate to start with. So that area is very... Crucial. It's in cattle, pigs, horses, sheep. Even in poultry, we're finding it difficult for reproduction. The same thing in humans. So yep. we see fertility drop. And uh, had a, a nurse that works at one of the fertility clinics in California for in vitro fertilization. Said. It's difficult to even find sperm and eggs that are viable enough to even go through that very delicate procedure to try and have a family. My, my wife is a, a Karolinska-trained physician, and she does fertility coaching online now with people around the planet. And a standard part of, of helping people get pregnant, you start months before you want to get pregnant, you, you don't eat GMOs, you don't eat glyphosate. You eliminate that systematically from your house, from your life, and your systems can come back online. It just takes some time. And there are some people where they probably never will. But like you, I, I don't have a concern about uh, overpopulation of the planet. I, I have a concern about rapidly falling fertility, and it's getting worse every year. So the, the next two generations, are they just won't be as big as these, at least not in the developed nations that have this industrial agriculture. I. I have two healthy young kids. Uh, we live on an organic farm, and like you don't you know bring Roundup on here. And if I could make the island where I live GMO and Roundup free, I would, uh, because I, th I think it increases property values to be able to yeah. say there is no, none of that stuff around here. Why don't you move here? Land is twice as expensive because it hasn't been poisoned. Yeah. Well, you you brought up uh, the virus. You know, my uh, USDA colleagues commented to me on the uh, bird flu epidemic that we had through the Midwest this year. It uh, eliminated 46 million chickens and turkeys. 
But the wow. interesting thing was that as my uh, USDA colleague made a comment, he said, it's really a strange strain that we had this year because the uh, organic flocks didn't lose a single bird. <laughs> the free range flocks, whether they were organic or just regular, there wasn't a single bird with bird flu. It was only those confined feeding on the GMO feeds developed wow. it. And you say, well, what's the association? Well, certainly one of the associations is that you have the viral promoter genes in that feed. That's the virulence gene. So you can take a very weak uh, virus that doesn't do anything to you except maybe make you uh, feel a little bit sluggish for a day mm. or something like a Zika virus, and you add that virulent viral virulence gene to it, that's the promoter. That's what makes that yeah. virus more active, and you're going to have a more severe response to it. And we saw that as a devastating response to our poultry industry with this bird flu epidemic this last year. In engineering weakness into biological systems it's so risky because biological systems share information with each other. I think we've engineered some profoundly weak humans who are susceptible to diseases we shouldn't be susceptible for or susceptible to. Well, you, you, you see a lot of the, the uh, physiological changes, not just some of those are from the gut microbiome changes, mm -hmm. but you also see it from just the direct effect of the high concentrations of glyphosate in our feed. So that there's one country that last year in their legislature passed a law that you no longer have to declare the sex of your child at birth. And you say, well, that's kind of a dumb law, isn't it? Said, can't you just look at the plumbing and tell whether it's a male <laughs> or a female? The truth is you can't. Because with the endocrine disruption, Oof. there are many situations where there's not a, a clear delineation of what the sex is. What country and, is that? Uh, that's in one of the European countries. Wow, the, so we've got hermaphrodites, region. human hermaphrodites increasing well, you, in percentage. I didn't have, know that. You have that or where neither one is, is uh, predominant. Or, sort of asexual, or okay. And so uh, what they did then was give them six months so they could do the genetic testing and see wow. whether they had the XY chromosome before oh. they rushed into surgery to dictate what that child was going to uh, phenotypically be for the rest of their life. It, it changes everything that we value, everything that we hold dear and our entire system, whether it's the environment, whether it's our uh, uh, soil health, human health, animal health, or crop health, this very simple compound and the GMO crops that uh, is applied to 95% of them uh, all have a very far-reaching long-term basis. It's not just now or, or tomorrow, we're talking generation effects when you talk disruption of the endocrine hormone system. And, you know, there's a good book. It's an older book now, 
I think 1984 or somewhere in there on our stolen future. Right. right. And that that's before people recognized or the authors recognized the tremendous impact of glyphosate. But just discussing what happens when you disrupt the endocrine hormone system with our ag chemicals, uh, because those are what we're all dependent on. Isaiah said, you know, all flesh is life. Well, we're, we're uh, dependent on those crops. Agriculture is our basic infrastructure. And if we ignore it, then the consequences impact us, not just today from a malnutrition effect, but also, as you've indicated, from the toxins and the other uh, effects that come in from an environmental standpoint. So people listening to this episode probably are are going, we're completely screwed. (laughs) Yet you have 11 kids and 35 grandkids uh, what do you tell them to do? Uh, tell them uh, eat healthy, <laughs> which clearly means grow, grow as okay. much as much your, of your food as you can on your own. Have a garden. Some of those things, some can, some can't. Uh, but find out what's in your food. Be active in making sure that you know. Well, you can't do that without labeling without uh, having some testing done. Now, we are getting laboratories now that are getting the test down so that it's in a reasonable $30 to $100 range. It's worth testing of finding out how much you're really consuming with the type of diet that you're you're eating. Send a urine sample in. Uh, now, when that comes back at... at uh, uh, 70 or 80 parts per million, don't commit suicide, but you know that you got to change your diet. Yeah. Some other things in Europe, they actually market a product called uh, Active Almond. It's a humic acid product, and it there are some other uh, materials here that uh, will actually pull glyphosate out of the body. Humic acid, uh, interesting. What what other materials would you recommend for that? Uh, clinoptilolite is one that oh. in the research has looked good. Very strong chelator, but also in that tetrahedron structure, if you can get the size down, uh, has the ability to absorb it. And these are these two entities have been quite effective in improving fertility. <laughs> You're exactly right. You Bentonite clay is is the <laughs> other name uh, that, that you just used. It. That's that's the street name for it. Yeah, bentonite clay and activated charcoal uh, are are things that I use on a regular basis. I actually manufacture a, a small particle size activated charcoal because removing biotoxins seems to make me perform better. Like like it. <laughs> now now with the activated charcoal, yeah, it'll it'll pull a lot of the toxins out. It doesn't pull the glyphosate. No. Unless you have sauerkraut juice with it. Now, that's news to me. What does sauerkraut juice do to charcoal? Sauerkraut juice provides the lactobacillus and the bifidobacteria. Those are the organisms that do the fermenting of the cabbage to make sauerkraut. And that's uh, an excellent source, then, of those two bacteria to recolonize 
your GI tract. Mm, okay. And so as Dr. Monica Kruger has shown that in combination with the act activated charcoal, that the sauerkraut juice is very effective. And the sauerkraut juice on its own has a very beneficial effect, but it's you get some of the combinations and sauerkraut juice with humic acid and the humic acid is, is definitely uh, an improvement in animals. In cattle, it may take seven or eight months before yeah. you get full re restoration of reproductive ability, uh, both in the bulls as well as in the cows. Uh, had a bull breeder in Nebraska tell me that uh, we were on a plane to New York, and he said it had to pull 40% of his bulls out of service. He couldn't get conception. Wow. But uh, with the activated charcoal and clinoctilolite, uh, in seven or eight months, you'll you'll see that restoration, sperm counts, uh, sperm uh, health improve. You'll see uh, uh, conception levels, rates restore back, back more to normal. On pigs, it's uh, two to three months, so it's a much shorter period there. They have a little, little faster recycling time. Pigs and humans are, are similar in the way we detox, and I, I find that humans are, are similar that way. When you use those compounds to bind the endocrine disruptors, to bind the mycotoxins, to bind the glyphosate, that we bounce back pretty quickly, but it's not a good idea to get pregnant three months after you do that because you should get cleaner before you get pregnant. Give yourself six months if you can do it uh, because that gives you time to build up uh, some resilience and, and rather than getting pregnant when you've, it's first possible. Well, and the, and the reason for that is that uh, while it's pulling the glyphosate, it's also pulling a lot of your beneficial minerals because, again, yeah. those, those compounds are chelators. And you want to build those back. Manganese is really important for mm -hmm. fertility. For glutathione and, production, right? And for glutathione and uh, also for the endocrine system mm -hmm. for your uh, enzymes involved there. So Jeffrey Sheffers, a uh, veterinary pathologist at the University of Minnesota, and she, uh, was on a program that I was on. And uh, he was reporting on his five-year study on birth defects in cattle and also on stillbirths. And he found that 100% of those calves that were deformed and uh, stillborn were extremely deficient in manganese. Yeah. And he said, well, what are my healthy ones? Well, he found 63% of his healthy ones were also extremely deficient. And so he started looking at the feed. And he found that the feed levels now, the high levels that he could find in any of the feed, uh, whether it was corn or whether it was hay or, or uh, pasture. Uh, the highest level is what we used to consider just the average. And his low levels, you wondered why, how those plants could even uh, uh, produce any photosynthate uh, <laughs> because he found some of them down as low as one part per million of manganese and uh, you have to have manganese to split that water to get the hydrogen to combine with carbon dioxide to form the sugar. This is one of those things where, where people have this idea, I should get all my, all my nutrients from food. Like, you have no idea what's in your food because the level of manganese could be high, it could be low, but 
the odds of it being high are pretty low right now. <laughs> Just because we've been farming for too long because we spray crap on the soil, right? Well, you have an extremely powerful chelator that ties up the manganese. So even if it's there, it's not going to be available physiologically. And then if it is available physiologically with the amount of glyphosate that you're eating and getting in, if you look at the geological, the U.S. geological uh, surveys, the amount that we're getting in the air and water just just because of the indiscriminate use is enough to immobilize a lot of those minerals that you have to have so that you may have a fair amount of manganese available in the plant when it gets into your body and you mix it with with this very powerful chelator you're not going to have it available for all of those physiological functions that it it needs to be uh, functional for. I I tested low on manganese, even though I supplement. I I, I probably have the most expensive pea on the planet. Like I, I take fistfuls of very carefully targeted supplements. I was still low, and it was kind of surprised. But all right, I I cranked it up, took an enzymated form of uh, of manganese for a couple months, and got my levels back up. But most people they don't test that stuff. Yeah, and, and of course, of course, some of them you. Know, with manganese and selenium, you know, you have a, a relatively narrow window compared to something like iron or calcium or magnesium. Uh, so it's it. you could also overdose, and that's one reason why you really should test and see what your status is. Creating uh, a lot of nuts and, and that, uh, uh, you're going to get a lot of these minerals, micronutrients that you're not going to get from other sources and uh, hopefully we won't get caught like they did with in California last year where a million pounds of almonds were rejected by Germany because excessive glyphosate. <laughs> I was and, about to say, uh, and, <laughs> I can see where that's going. <laughs> and that one, uh, they hadn't applied glyphosate for two years to any of those orchards. Wow. So... In many of our soils, we have over, uh, I think Frank Dean showed and, and Andrew Como in Canada, Frank Dean in the U.S. was showing uh, over 100 pounds of glyphosate per acre Good still God. sitting in our soil because it's a very difficult compound to degrade. Very few microorganisms can chew it up. There are more than a few medical professionals who listen to the show, and there are also more than a few farmers and ranchers who listen to this. I, I suspect they're skewed towards the organic side of things uh, because there's always that, that sort of a bias. But if you run, if you listen to this, and you're running or you're investing in or, or you own uh, cropland and you want to make a lot of money, stop spraying Roundup on your land now because – Right now, organic certification is really expensive. I, I'm working on organic certification for my own farm right now, uh, and I'll get it because it's never been sprayed, and it, it won't be that hard to do. I can pass any test because it wasn't in production before. However, um, if you have land, the amount of time that you haven't sprayed it with glyphosate is going to increase its value. If you stop spraying now, you'll have a lot more money a few years from now because people who hear this show and people who see all the other research, all the movies, documentaries, books – like the cat's out of the bag. So if you're a late actor, you'll have the least valuable farmland and the least productive farmland. And if you're an early actor and you stop doing this crap now and you start restoring your soil, you're going to make a lot of money. 
And if you're an investor, you should pay attention to that. This is a long-term trend. It's a 10-year-plus trend, but it's, it's money on the table if you're trying to make a living growing food, which is kind of an important thing to do. Yeah, the, the natural half-life of glyphosate can be anywhere from a year and a half to as long as 22 years. <clears throat> now, we do have people that are there have developed some what appear to be in the early stages very effective biological cocktails that you can get out there and and uh, get some much more rapid degradation and clean that up. Wow. But it's an it's another expense. But at least not quite as bleak now as it looked five or six years ago where we were having difficulty even finding organisms that could break it down. Uh, one of those organisms that, that can utilize it as a nutrient source is fusarium. We talked about why, <laughs> why we have mold, all, right? all these toxins uh, <laughs> running around. Well, we're feeding it. We're stimulating it. And, oh. uh, but uh, that carbon phosphite, it's not a phosphate compound, even though we lump it with, with the organic phosphates. But it's a phosphite. The enzyme that breaks that carbon-phosphite bond is very rare in nature. And so in these cocktails, they're making sure they get those there and uh, really looking very promising for us as at least a way out in a reasonable period of time. Otherwise, we're talking generations. So, so hopefully science can save us from science. Uh, in fact, it seems like that's always been the way it, it's been since the invention of fire. <laughs> yeah, well, science, science has always produced other knowledge, greater knowledge, and then we recognize there other side effects, unintended consequences as a result of that. And we've been able to make progress because in the past we always recognized it. Yeah. We always, we always said, okay, what's the consequence? What's, What's, what are the unintended effects? And then we address those. When it came to genetic engineering, that was prohibited. That kind of thinking was verboten in academia, in industry, and everything else. And uh, they said these are substantially equivalent. You can't do any testing. The USDA group that was set up uh, with 26 of our real elite uh, academic institutions, land-grant colleges, and a technical advisory committee uh, was set up to determine safety of GMO crops in 1992 or 1991. Uh, we had them available to us at the time. They weren't commercialized, but after three years, they wrote an open letter to the uh, EPA, who they were working with, and said, were prohibited by the companies from doing any testing. These are proprietary products, and they threatened to sue us if we publish any negative data from it. Plus, they don't make the materials available to them for testing to start with, and it's illegal for them to generate it because, again, it's a patented product. So that if you look at the EPA and the FDA uh, Policies, they say we can't release any of the material because it's a proprietary product. And uh, even though they go ahead and deregulate them, 
nobody's had an opportunity to to see what that looks like until just recently. And then you find the fraud and the falsification of data, even in those uh, tests that are submitted to the official agencies. Got so bad in 1991 that the EPA even sued uh, several of the labs that uh, Monsanto was using. For instance, the uh, IBM or IBT, I believe it was, I forget what the names, all those labs, but Anyway, it's open open court documents that you can get. Uh, you can go to Wikipedia, and it'll give you a little rundown on some of those court cases. But they sued them for just blatant falsification of their data. Uh, wow. Fined them $19.2 million, and a few of those laboratory people for uh, perjuring themselves in sending that false data got free room and board for a few years. But uh, wow. those, those situations, that's all public record as the, as the fraud that's gone in it. Uh, Steve Drucker, again, in his book, Altered Genes, Twisted Truth, has very meticulously documented many of those situations uh, uh, showing how the system's been corrupted at the expense of of health. And so Dr. Swanson and, and their, uh, her publication and, and the group's publication there with the CDC data, uh, uh, just titled it something like, uh, GMO and glyphosate, uh, effects on the deteriorating health in America. It's, uh, uh, very well done, very statistical, type of a presentation, but uh, you see see that scientific censorship that's gone on. Uh, we, we hired a tremendous genetic engineer or uh, geneticist at uh, Purdue when I was still on the active faculty uh, before my emeritus uh, retired status, and uh, tremendous individual who uh, did some research showing that the mode of action of glyphosate isn't a chemical resistance. It's a matter of resistance to the soil-borne pathogens that are the organisms that really do the herbicidal activity. It, it's increasing disease susceptibility. Well, that threatened the endowments and some of the income and, uh, he was released as soon as his uh, six-year probationary period was up, and we were able to pick him up, a tremendous geneticist, a great scientist, and we were happy to have him. But you find that going on all the time. Uh, Barney Gordon, a uh, uh, great uh, agronomist, uh, one of our land-grant universities, uh, Yen made the mistake of publishing some of his research to alert his farmers to the need in the genetic engineering engineered crops to increase their micronutrient levels. They're not going to be as available. They're not as efficient in taking those nutrients up. And also, then when you apply the glyphosate, you reduce the availability of those nutrients. So you need to look at those soil and tissue tests and 
say, okay, I've got to, got to add a couple of pounds of manganese was one of the things that he was looking at, and maybe as much as five pounds. Well, it only takes a, a half pound for the total, total sufficiency of the plant, but to overcome that, then you need to, to add more. Well, as a result of publishing that, uh, he got uh, verbally beat up pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, a few months later, he published an apology for publishing his science, which he stated, I uh, published it so our growers could maintain their production efficiency. Wow. And uh, had to apologize, said, I didn't recognize the unintended consequences of publishing my data. Well, that's part of that scientific censorship that is uh, prevails throughout the whole system when it comes to genetic engineering. It's really more of more of uh, religion than it is a science. The, the science again is fossil science, the whole premise that it's built on. Uh, it's an exciting area. I've been involved in it for. Uh, number of years to do things that we couldn't do otherwise. But also you have to recognize that you may only look for one thing, but you're doing many other things in the process that you'd better be very concerned about until they're tested thoroughly. Well, the, we're reaching the stage where the economic impacts of scientific censorship are too great to ignore. When, when you've lost half your crop of chickens, when 40% of your animals can't reproduce, you're going to go out of business. And, and especially if you're a small farmer, there are a few of those left. But, but if you're a larger farmer and, and you have shareholders and boards of directors, it, it doesn't matter what the official, uh, official censored scientific story is. Either your animals reproduce or they don't. And if at the same time your animals don't reproduce, you can't reproduce either you can or you can't, that's when people start looking at what works instead of what's supposed to work. Yeah. And I, I think we're, we're hitting that tipping point where you, just, you have to do that because you want to eat. You, you have to do that because you want to have kids. And that's going to shake up agriculture. And I, honestly, I, I think there's going to be a few chemical company executives uh, in jail for, uh, for a very long time. And I think it's probably yeah. well-deserved at this point. Well, it's estimated by uh, one lawyer, at least, that... Uh the medical trust fund that will be required for genetic engineered damage and the glyphosate damage will exceed $200 billion. Wow. I think that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. We, we agree there. Well, Dr. Huber, this has been a fascinating conversation. I learned some things I didn't know, and I consider myself uh, relatively well-read on, on this topic. So th thank you for, for the new knowledge. I know listeners uh, enjoyed the heck out of this. There's a, a final question that I'd like to ask you that I've asked every guest on the show. And it's, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, based on your whole life experience, not, not just your, your profession and, and your academic side, if they said, look, I want to perform better at everything I do in my life, what are the three most important things I should know? What would you tell them? First one, I think, is your attitude. And your, for me, it's my relationship with my maker. That That's critical because it dictates how you approach problems and how you approach things. Uh, 
along with that is we don't we don't live in a, an isolated hermitage and uh, family is a critical structure that I value above all all else essentially in that area that but in order to have that ability and have that relationship with each other you have to feel good you have to be healthy you have to be a contributor to society rather than a drain on society and it's it's that opportunity to serve and to uh, uh, both in family and community and worldwide and I've had that privilege and I've really appreciated uh, being an international consultant and working on a lot of projects around the world, uh, that you realize that we all have a place and a role together. That, uh, But if you're not healthy, you're not able to do any of that. And your health has to be uh, a priority for you. And whether that's that's going to encompass a spiritual and mental health, as well as the physical and uh, health that's involved there. Uh, those are my priorities, I guess, shooting from the hip. Well, the, those are always the best answers. Uh, now, thank now you. My, my wife might, might change those priorities a little bit. <laughs> they tend to do that, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks again. Uh, for uh, for being on the show, is there any particular resource you'd like to direct listeners to to learn more about your work or about just the GMOs and glyphosate in, in general? I think uh, there are some good reviews out. Steve Drucker's book deals with just the process of genetic engineering and the problems there. Excellent book. Uh, get it on Amazon or a number of places. Uh, uh, there's uh, GMO Myths and Proofs, which is a review of, I think, pretty close to 800 peer-reviewed scientific studies, where they, uh, uh, Michael Antonio at King's College Medical School in England, and Claire Robinson and uh, John Fagan here in the U.S., editors of that, but they look at all of the promises and all of the promises of GMOs that were given to us 25 years ago uh, have all been proven to be failed promises. And But they look at those promises because they're still touted and have gone through then and have the actual scientific data to show what's happened, what what how those promises really materialized for us. It's uh, an open source, about 400 page book that uh, they can get on the internet. And uh, that I understand they're trying to come out with a hard copy on it now, but, okay. but it is available free and uh, an excellent resource. And then these other reviews, Nancy Swanson's book, uh, uh, Shiva Adairi at MIT has four papers last year just showing what happens to the uh, physiology of a plant when it's genetically engineered as far as the new toxins that are produced, the formaldehyde accumulation, the depletion of glutathione and those things. Uh, uh, so there's some uh, excellent sources. You don't have to read all 
1,700 papers uh, <laughs> that, that show concerns. What I will do is uh, I'll link to all of those resources in the transcript for this podcast. So people who are listening can go to the Bulletproof website and we'll have everything we said transcribed. And at the end of it, there'll be just direct links so they can either buy the book on Amazon or download any of the papers. So th- thanks again for being on Bulletproof Radio. This has been a really excellent interview. And, and thanks for your, your life's work on this stuff. I, I think you've, you've really shined a light where it needed to be shined. Dave, I'm still having fun. I have a concern <laughs> for my kids, but I also know that, uh, uh, you know, if we, if we work at it, if we recognize the problem, we can correct it. We can indeed. And you, you've given listeners several really good ideas here and, uh, hopefully we move the needle for, for millions of people with this conversation. Uh, that's what I'm working to do. Thanks again. Thank, thanks, Dave. If you enjoyed today's episode, you know what to do. Stop eating glyphosate. That would be the number one thing to do. That'll make you perform better. It'll make a bigger difference in how you feel every day, how you perform, and your ability to do all the other stuff you want to do than just about anything else you could do, except maybe Bulletproof Coffee. I mean, they, they might be near each other. But I'm serious about that. There's no glyphosate on my land. There's no glyphosate in my food. My kids never come near the stuff. Uh, they don't eat school lunches. Well, they go to a school where school lunches don't have glyphosate. But whatever it takes, you got to get this out of your own system, out of the environment around you, and especially out of your kids' environments. It is a matter of life and death. It is a matter of survival of the species, but it's actually not as hard as you might think it is. So this is something you can do, and I think it's really important. And when you do this, it makes you a more powerful human being, and that is very, very precious. Have an awesome day, and I'll see you on the next episode. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.